Arthur, thank you for that prayer. Thank you for leading us in that song. It's a, it's a very sad thing to think that uh, in this particular capacity, that may be the last time you lead us in the doxology uh, at congregational prayer. That's always a blessing. Good morning uh, and very nearly happy new year, but not just yet. Please join me, if you haven't already, in your Bibles uh, by turning to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be looking together at verses 17 and 18 this morning, but we'll read in just a moment, starting at verse 10. We are finishing today what we've set about to do in this month of December. What we've been doing is we've been working through Hebrews chapter 2 in order to hear what have been many answers it's given us to the question, why the incarnation? Why did God become man? Today we finish that by hearing answers from verses 17 and 18. But what we find this morning leads us in a bit of a different direction than we've been brought in the last three weeks because we're going to see these verses describe what God accomplished in the incarnation by really focusing our attention on a description of the God-man himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's somewhat less focused than previous weeks have been on what he has done in the incarnation and is more focused on what he is like in the incarnation. And for God's people, any time spent describing our Savior is time well spent and is time that encourages What we're going to find this morning, in short, is this. We're going to find that by means of the incarnation, we have been given a particular kind of help by being provided a particular kind of helper. Although we're looking at 17 and 18 this morning, let me start reading at verse 10 and read down to verse 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you once more stand together? Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 18. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And now the beginning of our text this morning. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What we do together this morning is to walk through four descriptions of Jesus Christ. 
that come together to present for us a particular kind of helper that we have been given, who is providing for us a particular kind of help. It'll be clear as we go through this morning, there are many ways to speak of the help that Jesus has given us, aren't there? And yet there's something particular that we're being encouraged in this morning with this picture. We'll see it as we collect these four descriptions. The first, beginning in verse 17, is simply the description we find here wherein Jesus is called our high priest. This is the first that we'll look at. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a high priest. Now that most certainly is a designation of what Jesus came in the flesh to do, just like the things we've seen in the last few weeks. But as we're starting to look at it here this morning, I would have us begin in the way I just read it, by leaving off the two descriptors, the two adjectives there. He was made like his brothers so that he might become a high priest. This is an acknowledgement of what Hebrews 5, 1, is also going to say, almost in passing. You might see it on the very next page of your Bible. It's that close, right? Hebrews 5, 1, that a priest is, quote, chosen from among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. If Jesus is going to serve us in the capacity of a priest, he must belong to the human race. As I said, this is not something new compared to the last several weeks, so we're not going to linger here. But we do need to notice this morning that verse 17 ties Christ's incarnation to his priestly work, work that has been being described to us before now, but only now is named as priestly work. We need to notice further that it declares Christ to be not just a priest, does it? What does it say? It declares him to be the high priest. I just mentioned Hebrews 5.1. If you glanced there, maybe you noticed that there too, it's describing the work of specifically the high priest. Every high priest chosen among men. And the work that it emphasized there in chapter 5 was the high priest's most important work. Maybe you've heard of this uh, necessity once a year, that he enters the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement, and sprinkles the blood of a sacrifice onto the mercy seat. This is what verse 17 here is describing too, isn't it? When it says that Jesus became a high priest in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's quite a word to find here, propitiation. That word speaks of the righteous wrath and anger of God against sin being extinguished, being satisfied. And that certainly is true in what Christ has done for us as our high priest. The wrath of God against the sins of his people has been, has been satisfied. However, the original word behind this here speaks of two things, not one. It does speak of God's anger against sin, but it also speaks of the actual guilt itself of our sin being borne by him and being brought to an end. So here's what we're reading then. We're reading that through his high priestly work, the anger of God against his sinful people has been satiated, and that because the very guilt of that sin itself has received its due penalty 
in the offering made by our Lord. Christ came in the flesh in order to be a priest, indeed to serve us in the role of our high priest, making propitiation for our sins. So this is our first description that we see, that Christ came in the flesh in order to become our high priest. And it's terribly important, isn't it, that reality? Yet, if we're going to do justice to this text, we actually need to move fairly quickly into the second description that we're given here in verse 17. Because what we're going to find very quickly is that what 17 emphasizes in particular is the posture toward us that Jesus serves with. So the second description we focus on this morning is that pair of adjectives that we left out for a moment, merciful and faithful. We read, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. I say that the author is emphasizing those qualities in particular because he actually emphasizes those qualities. That he places those words in the emphatic position in the sentence. He moves them to the front, which is what you do when you're wanting to make a particular point about something in the sentence. Literally, this is what he writes when he writes it. Quote, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that a merciful he might become and faithful high priest. Here, it's the manner of his high priestliness. I'm not sure if that's a word or not. It's the manner of his high priestliness toward us that is being emphasized here. What are we told with these two words of description? We'll start with merciful. When you look up that word that is used there in a lexicon, here is what you find. That word means pertaining to being concerned about people in their need. Merciful, sympathetic, compassionate. I would ask you to hold on to those two synonyms that you just heard there as it's describing mercy. Hold on to the words sympathetic and compassionate. It is the very notion that this book of Hebrews proceeds to expand on in chapter 4, starting at verse 15. And would you please look over there quickly with me, Hebrews 4, 15. We don't have time to explore it this morning, but this two-sided description we're getting in our verse of mercy and faithfulness creates a bridge into the next section of Hebrews. Because what suddenly happens after he tells us this in 17 and 18 is that faithfulness comes on center stage in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and then mercy takes center stage in chapter 4, especially in verses 14 to 16. And that's where I'm having you look now. Look at 4.15. That's a verse that's on most any list you'll find of suggested verses for a Christian to memorize. And for very good reason. Maybe some of you have this committed to memory. We read this about our Lord. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we're going to keep reading, but pause for a second and notice something there. Do you notice that it ties the fact of his commonality with us 
In every respect, he has been tempted as we are. He ties the fact of his commonality with us to this reality of his ability, it says, his ability to sympathize. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what is the result of this? You see verse 16 then. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My friends, this is not describing a picture of saving mercy at conversion. That is not the, the, the point that he's holding out to us. This is talking about a person who has been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, who has become qualified to approach the throne, being able to approach because our high priest sympathizes with our weaknesses. It's in our weakness that we can, with confidence, draw near to this throne. And when we do, what do we find there? We find mercy. Same word as ours today in verse 17. We find compassion. We come in our weakness, in need of help, and what we're met with is compassion by one who sympathizes with us. Hebrews 2.17 announces that in being made like his brothers, he has become a high priest who is full of this mercy, full of sympathy and compassion. And why? Because he too has endured temptation. It's not insignificant at all, I think, to realize that priests in the Old Testament are never once called merciful. They have a job to do. And after all, in the job that they are performing, they're providing a service to themselves as much as to anyone else. They're in need of this service. They're never called merciful. There is someone in the Old Testament who is called merciful again and again and again, and that is Yahweh himself, praised over and over for this particular trait toward his people. So here then is Jesus coming in the flesh to become our high priest, fulfilling that desperately needed office, and yet doing it with the very heart of God himself. This is what we have as Christ has come in the flesh. Now coming back to chapter 2, what about the second word? What about faithful? He's called a merciful and faithful high priest. The question is, where is the emphasis here? as he's describing a faithful high priest, is, is the emphasis on his faithfulness to God? So in terms of like obedience, is that what's being praised? Or is it on his faithfulness to the people that he's representing? So maybe a word like trustworthiness. Many have made the point that when you're talking about a high priest who is faithful, the two go together, don't they? You really can't have one without the other when you're talking about a faithful high priest, and that is true. Still, I agree with those who say that, given the context, the stress here by the author is aimed in that second direction. It's aimed at his trustworthiness from his people's standpoint. We needed him in those ways he was serving us. We needed him, and he didn't let us down. Peter O'Brien renders this word faithful as declaring Jesus 
quote, worthy of believers' trust. And a few hundred years ago, John Owen wrote about this word. He said, the faithfulness mentioned in this verse is not Christ's faithfulness in general, in which he carried out his whole work, but rather his care and compassion for the needs and sorrows of his brothers as they suffer and are tempted. So I hope you see that both of these descriptors here, merciful, faithful, they describe Jesus as a particular encouragement to us. He is our high priest. And in that service, he is full of compassion for us. He has shown himself committed to those he intercedes for, worthy of our trust. Now let's add to that what we see in verse 18. We come to the third description in our text of our Lord, and we're going to just keep adding it into this picture that we're having developed for us. And although we'll look at verse 18 in a couple of parts, listen first to what the whole thing says. Now that you've heard, and we've walked through verse 17. Verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Certainly connected to 17, isn't it? It follows right after 17. It begins with the word for. And this seems to me to clearly be demonstrating that the help that verse 18 describes is the compassion and commitment that he has towards us in 17. What verse 18 says is that he can be that kind of help to us because, and here's the third description we come to this morning, he himself has suffered when tempted. This mercy from our high priest, this compassion, this commitment is present because his experiences in the flesh have created true sympathy for the people that he loves and that he represents. Now I'll tell you, I, I am um, very interested to know what is in your head as you hear a statement like that. I wonder what kind of sympathy you are imagining in your head when you hear of our Lord sympathizing with us in our weakness because he himself has suffered when tempted. There's a real danger in this moment that we have to be aware of and we have to guard against. Uh, and it's a danger, like so many dangers, that is fueled by very good intentions. In our eagerness to be identified with our Lord, the danger here is that we would wind up drawing him too near in misguided zeal. And the way we understand a statement like this, this is one of the places where the rubber meets the road in that kind of a way. What do we think we're hearing about when we hear that Jesus suffered when tempted? And to try to get at what I'm aiming at here, let me describe a scenario. This would be a uh, pervasive human experience, a typical scenario that we're all very familiar with in this room. And let me describe it, and I'm going to ask you, do you think Jesus experienced this? All right, so that's the question. Often, I experience the words that are being given here. I suffer amid temptation. And very often the way that that happens is that a temptation comes to me to do something that is sinful. And that sinful thought 
appeals to me. It finds something in my heart that desires it. It's presented to me, this thing that is a sinful thing, and I desire it. But being a born-again believer, I now have a heart of flesh. My conscience is alive. God's law is written on my heart. And so I know I shouldn't desire it. And so a war goes on in me as I fight and resist sinful temptation. And another way to describe that is to say, I suffer. That's a hard, that's a suffering that I go through. Did Jesus ever experience that? Did he desire sin, but suffer through the suppression of that desire? The answer to that question is no, never, never. Jesus is perfect in holiness. Never was there ever anything in him that sin appealed to, not once. But then the question is begged then, in what sense is he said here to have been tempted and to have suffered when tempted? This is what we have to wrestle with. What do we think we are saying when we hear these words? Think of the two places where we really see temptation most visibly on display. Think of the temptation in the wilderness as he's tempted by Satan. And think of the temptation that Jesus felt to avoid the cross. In the wilderness, for example, you have Jesus fasting for 40 days and then being told by Satan to turn the stones into bread. Now, Satan is God's great enemy. Jesus knows he is not to listen to him or to entertain his suggestions. He knows he is acting out the very thing that Adam, our first father, failed in as suggestions were made to listen to a voice other than the voice of his father. To apply what we just said about Jesus' perfection, here's what we'd say. We would say, Jesus did not wrestle with the temptation to obey Satan. The notion of obeying, of listening to the voice of Satan instead of God's voice, never appealed to Jesus. He never struggled with the desire to do that. But was Jesus really hungry? Yes, he hadn't eaten for 40 days. I can get very hungry, and I've not come anywhere close to that number. He was hungry. Was the thought of bread desirable to Jesus? Yes. And in resisting the, the suggestion to create bread then and to eat, did Jesus endure suffering as he was choosing to obey his father? Yes, he did. Or again, think of the temptation to avoid the cross. After that wilderness temptation, by Satan, Luke 4.13 says, Satan left him until an opportune time. That's what it says. I think it's quite easy to discern that the cross was that opportune time. It's about the cross that Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, don't even think that way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus' behavior in the garden of Gethsemane makes abundantly clear just what a struggle Jesus had in reference to the cross. He prays to the Father and says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is increasingly horrified at the idea that he is approaching the suffering of God's judgment. 
he quite naturally does not look forward to experiencing that. And he would like to avoid experiencing it, if possible. You could say Jesus desires to avoid suffering God's judgment. But he does not at all desire to subvert God's will, does he? He says it directly, not my will, but yours be done. He is not struggling with a desire to subvert the plan and will of the Father. He is struggling with the desire to not want to endure the suffering of God's judgment, which is a very natural thing and a proper thing to not want to experience, isn't it? Or my goodness, think of Jesus' entire sinless life. He never desired sin, and yet his calling required him to over and over again feel very natural and proper feelings and desires and yet refuse to act on them in all that he had to do. Think of the extreme busyness of his three years of earthly ministry. Uh, we have just a glimpse of the amount of fatigue that he felt, the amount of, of, uh, of weariness. And doubtless there were many times when in his weariness he would have desired to stop work for the day when there was more work to be done. But because of what he needed to do, he had to deny himself that perfectly acceptable desire. Think of natural human sexuality. Jesus was a true human being. And we could say at the same time, both that fornication never appealed to Jesus and that Jesus had to endure the natural suffering that accompanies those particular trials of single adults. Uh, we're simply seeing that a faithful life inevitably entails suffering, and not always because of the presence of sinful thoughts or sinful desires. I'll move on from this by sharing something that was written by the Dutch-American theologian Gerhardus Voss. He was a professor at Westminster Seminary. Voss wrote this, in reference to this passage, he says, wherever the epistle of Hebrews speaks of temptations of Christ, it always means to refer concretely and specifically to the temptations that arose from his call to suffer. Of temptations in general, it never speaks in connection with Jesus. And in thus doing, it limits the sphere of the Savior's temptations. See if you can follow this. It limits the sphere of the Savior's temptations to that class of experiences wherein a real appeal to his feelings and desires was possible, and yet the mere presence and force of such an appeal could not endanger his sinlessness. Here's an example he gives. For the inclination to escape from suffering, which made the temptation a real one, is in itself a natural, innocent inclination. It could assert itself in the Savior's heart and require a positive choice of the will to overbear it and keep it down without depending for its power on the presence of evil. See, that is exactly the way that so many of our sufferings are not like the sufferings of our Lord. For so often for us, the temptation and its suffering that I endure is based on for its power, the presence of evil in me. Sinful desire. Such is not the case for our Lord. So we must understand this sympathy that our Lord has with us in our suffering amid temptation. It is not a sympathy that says, 
yeah, I know how tempting fornication can be, or I know how tempting theft can be. Rather, it's a sympathy that says, yeah, I know how exhausting it is to resist a thought, a desire, to endure in suffering. If we hear that rightly, then the fourth and final description can convey to us what it intends to. The final description here says that Jesus is one who is thus able to help those who are being tempted. We know he has helped us in the ultimate way at the cross, in in what was actually uh, accomplished at the cross. But this help that's being held out to us here is moving even beyond that to the daily help that we need as believers in our everyday lives. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to help us as we walk through life in this world as redeemed creatures and yet continuing to wrestle and struggle with our limitations in our flesh. We know that that help comes in a great number of forms from our Lord. He helps us in so many ways. He brings his word to our mind, guiding us, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That's Titus chapter 2. We know he is at work inside of us, helping us from the inside out by the presence of his spirit, renewing us after his own image. He enlivens our consciences uh, to encourage our endurance and our obedience and our humility. He is at work helping us by means of our brothers and sisters in Christ. With all, you think of all the one another's that are commanded in Scripture and that are hugely beneficial and needed. He helps us through the work of the ministry of the corporate body to which we belong. We know that our Savior guides, protects, and helps us as we endure the temptations of this life. But my friends, most directly what our passage has told us is that as he helps us, what is his stance toward us? Is it clinical? Is it annoyed? What is it? that this one who has suffered amid temptation, who knows what it is to endure, in fact, who knows infinitely better than we ever will, we who have constantly given in to our temptations, this one who never gave in, this one who endured the full power of temptation in this life, he knows far better than we. And because of what he has endured, because of the experiences of the God-man and the Incarnation. Our Lord helps us out of an abundance of mercy and compassion and dedication. That's how he views his children who need so much help from him. Are you ever discouraged at the thought, sometimes in particular seasons, of just how much help you require, how much patience you require. This is what he has ended this chapter by giving to us. What is the stance of this one who helps us? 
We've even heard that it is easy for him to view us that way. Because, my friends, he's been here. He himself has suffered when tempted. And as a result, he looks upon us with eyes full of sympathy. My friends, look at what God has given to us by coming to us in the flesh. Look at what you have and what you will always have in the one who has stood in your place, the one who always intercedes for you. Look at what you have in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I simply ask you this morning for more of these sights, that you would lead us more, that we would be faithful to come to you and your word more and to see the pictures you have given to us, to see what you have shown us of your son, his perfections, his beauty, his holiness, his righteousness, his might, his power, all of that in this one who looks upon us with eyes of sympathy, who is compassionate towards us. Because in what he has endured, he is sympathetic to his children in our weaknesses. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We ask you for the grace in this coming year to love him more, to know him better. Lord, cause us to follow very near after our Savior in this next year. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me once more? Let's conclude our time in song.